back on a warm November afternoon this past year. I was uh, out in the garden, and uh, our flower bed, I guess we don't really have, it's not big enough to call it a garden. Uh, out in the flower bed, uh, weeding, and Cindy had asked me to go out there and clean out all the dead flowers and stuff, and get ready for in the spring when we get ready to plant new stuff. Now, as I was going around out there working in the flower bed, I was pulling weeds and all that fun stuff, and everything goes along with that. I noticed there were a couple guys walking down the street. They were knocking on every single door. And uh, just as I was going about, you know, I couldn't you know, really hear what they were saying or anything, but I noticed that, you know, they knock on the door, door would open. They were saying something to the person who would answer the door, and the answer was clearly no, and the door would get shut. Every house on down the line, they came. Boom, 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 boom. Knocking on the door, saying something to these people, bam, door shut. Well, they came all the way down the street, and they got to me while I was outside, so I couldn't, I couldn't shut a door. Um, as they came up to me, and as they walked up to me in the yard, I noticed they had name tags, and they said that they're uh, Elder Davies and Elder Wiggleland or something like that. And uh, these guys were Mormons. They go to the uh, what they refer to as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm not really in the habit of... Uh, turning down opportunity to study the Bible with people. So when somebody literally walks up to your doorstep and says, hey, we'd like to study with you, I thought, well, hey, that, you know, that makes it a little easier for me. So Sandy and I have been studying with these guys since, uh, since mid-December. And what I have, uh, I guess, to, to talk about this morning is uh, one thing in particular that they've talked about a lot with us, uh, and that's this concept of the, uh, what they consider the baptism for the dead. Um, so I've been working on this for a while. I, I think it's, the argument is probably about 90% complete, so I'm not quite done. So if anybody has any uh, constructive criticism they want to offer after I'm done, I would certainly appreciate it. But this comes from the specific talks that we've had with these two guys. This is not a general argument. This is specific verses and things that they've brought up and arguments that they've made and, and uh, the, the responses that we've had to it. So to kind of start off, kind of outline what exactly we're talking about when, when a Mormon comes up to you and they say, you know, we, we, practice, we have this practice that we do in our temples. It's called the baptism for the dead. What exactly are they talking about? Well, what they do is once, once you become an active or what they call a worthy member of the Mormon church, they have these rituals that they perform on their Sabbath day. They call Sunday the Sabbath day when they assemble the worship. They go into their temple meetings, and one of what they consider to be one of the most important works that they do is that they'll be baptized for the dead. And what it is, it's a baptism. They're baptized vicariously for other people. It's a proxy baptism. And the way the ritual is performed is that they simply stand in front of the group, and they would, they would say, you know, I, elder so-and-so, am baptized on behalf of, you know, Abraham Lincoln, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So it's this idea that those who died before the, the Book of Mormon was revealed, you know, weren't able to have Mormon teachings, so they're baptized in proxy for them so that in the afterlife they can accept the teachings of the Mormons and move on into paradise and into heaven with God. So that's the basic frame or the outline of what we're working with. Um, some of the materials that I've used to kind of put some of these arguments together and research it, study in more detail. There's a, there's a series of books put out by a couple named Gerald and Sandra Tanner. They live in Utah. 
they have their own publishing company called the Utah Lighthouse Ministry. And basically they've dedicated, you know, their whole purpose and of their ministry is to uh, discuss with Mormons, you know, and teach Mormons, you know, about the errors of their doctrine. They have several books. The biggest one and probably the masterpiece that they've got, it costs $22. It's called Mormonism, Shadow or Reality. It's, uh, it costs $22 and it's over 600 pages. It's a detailed, very analytical document where they've taken the Book of Mormon, the original one that was published in 1833, and they've gone through and detailed out some 4,000 changes that have made, been made to the document since it was first written to show all the, the different errors and the different things that have been changed and then expose uh, a lot of the other issues that they have with Mormonism. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit from uh, some of the information they've put in and this is from a section called Temple Work. Uh, so the Mormon doctrine of baptism for the dead was first practiced in Nauvoo, Illinois. Wilford Woodruff, who later became president of the church, reported that Joseph Smith himself went into the Mississippi River one Sunday night after meeting and baptized a hundred. I baptized another hundred. The next man, a few rods from me, baptized another hundred. We were strung up and down the Mississippi, baptizing for our dead. This comes from the Desert Weekly, volume 42, page 554. On May 2nd, 1843, Charlotte Haven wrote a letter in which she told of watching the Mormon elders baptizing for the dead in the icy cold river. She was very surprised when the name George Washington was called out. Mormon leaders teach that the spirits of people who have died before receiving a Mormon baptism cannot enter the celestial kingdom of heaven until a person is baptized for them by proxy, i.e. a living person is immersed on behalf of the dead person. According to the History of the Church, Volume 4, page 599, Joseph Smith made these comments. Chrysostom says that the Martianites practiced baptism for their dead. After a catchman was dead, they had a living man under the bed of the deceased. Then coming to the dead man, they asked him whether he would receive baptism, and he making no answer, the other answered for him, and said that he would be baptized in his stead. And so they baptized the living for the dead. The church, of course, at that time was degenerate, and the particular form might be incorrect, but the thing is sufficiently plain in the scripture, since Paul, in speaking of the doctrine, says, Else what shall they do which, the, which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are them, they then baptized for the dead? That comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29. Uh, reading on a little more here. Mormon apostle Orson Pratt frankly admitted that the Bible does not contain information as to how baptism for the dead should be performed. This doctrine may have been as important as baptism to the living. Does the written or unwritten word of God with which Christendom are acquainted inform them anything about how this ceremony is to be performed? Does it inform them who is to officiate? Who is the candidate in behalf of the dead? What classes of the dead are to be benefited by it? All these important questions remain unanswered by scripture and tradition. Um, let's see, what else? Um, probably one of the most important statements is that uh, Joseph Fielding Smith, who later down in the history of the Mormon Church became the 10th president, proclaimed that the greatest commandment given, them, given us, talking about the Mormons, and made obligatory, is the temple work in our own behalf and in behalf of our dead. On page 146 of the same book, this is referencing a book called Doctrines of Salvation that they put out. 
the prophet Joseph Smith himself, who is considered the father of Mormonism, declared that the greatest responsibility, that's very important, the greatest responsibility in this world that God has laid upon us is to seek after our dead. So kind of lay out some of the arguments there in the teaching there. Um, I'm assuming that everybody at least has a little bit of a basic understanding of Mormonism. If you don't, you're a little confused by some of that, you can talk to me or, or get one of these books and read some more in depth on it after the lesson. But so the idea here is then that, you know, someone who has died outside of the Mormon faith, they can't accept the teachings of Mormonism if someone is baptized for them. A living person baptized from that's already dead. Um, so how do you how do you respond to that? You know, where do you start? And we've got several points here that I want to kind of take a look at and go about um, trying to really dissect this. Uh, really how we've kind of approached this is to try and be very surgical and to go after each little piece of this and just piece by piece kind of break this down and evaluate it and evaluate it versus what the Bible says about it and trying to expose the, you know, the error of, of the teaching and what's going on here. Uh, so where we kind of started off, if you'll turn to Mark, Mark chapter 12, verses 29 through 31. Mark chapter 12, 29 through 31. Remember that, that phrase that I read there, that Joseph Smith himself says, that seeking after or caring for the dead is the greatest responsibility that they have. What's it say in Mark chapter 12, verse 29? Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You know, those verses right there, I think that that tells us, you know, this is coming from Christ himself. What are the most important, what is the greatest responsibility we have here in this world? We need to obey those commandments. We need to love God and we need to love our neighbors ourselves. Those commandments have to do with the living. They don't have anything to do with the dead. There's nothing said about the dead there. The first one is about loving God and giving our creator honor and glory. And the second is about loving our neighbors as ourselves. No mention there about you know, seeking after the dead or taking care of the dead or doing anything for the dead or anything like that. Now, as part of this uh, Mormon teaching of baptism for the dead, they believe that they have to have very detailed and specific records for a person. Like, they can't just say, I, I'm being baptized for John and have that cover every person that's ever lived that, named, that was named John. They spend millions upon millions of dollars every year building huge genealogical databases so that they can baptize themselves in proxy for literally everyone that they can find in history on back. As far as they can find, they, they, their members are, it's one of the most diligent things that they do. They, they try and chase their, their ancestral roots. They try and go through the whole family tree, everybody. In fact, in Utah, they have, at the headquarters of the church, one of, one of the largest databases of genealogical information in the world. Uh, and they're spending millions upon millions of dollars on this every year. What does it say in Titus chapter 3, verse 9? About all this, about all this genealogy work. 
as you think about the time that goes in to studying genealogies endlessly. Titus chapter 3, verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And then if you also move over to Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the Great Commission. This is what we are told to spend our time doing. We're not to be spending our time searching endlessly for genealogies, building databases about people that have already died. We need to do what we can with the living and those who are there with us now. We need to teach them about the Word of God. We need to spread the message to those around us. Those who are dead and gone have already had their time. We need to be concerned with the living and teaching those around us who don't know the Word of God. Another thing that uh, really comes up in this is really the question of accountability. And one of the, you know, the back and forth that we've had on this is that, you know, why... Why, why would it be important to, to go to church if you could have someone be baptized later on after you've died? If you can have someone baptized in proxy for you, accept the teachings, and then be allowed into heaven, then really does it matter what you live like on this earth? You know, it, it's, it really starts to take away from your, the accountability of what you live your life like here on this earth. And there's, they, they haven't really had much of an answer to come back on that. And really one of the main verses that they point to is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Let's take a look at that. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. In all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. But they will... But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. So the argument kind of keys in there around verse 6, where it's, you know, even though, even though they're dead, you know, it's been preached to them even though they're dead. In the end of that verse they say, but, you know, they're then able to live in the spirit according to the will of God. Let's back up a little bit. Let's read, you know, start in chapter 4. Let's, let's take a look at verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. So there's what the passage is about. Verse 3, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. 
saying there then that those who have been taught and have, have suffered are like Christ and that they have ceased from sinning. They have turned away from their old ways. They've repented. And that, you know, in verse 6, what it's really talking about is that those, those people who've done that, you know, we see in these other couple of verses, you know, they've changed their lives. They've changed the path that they were going on. So the people that were with them or saw them making that change, you know, they were maligned for that because they didn't do the things that they used to do. So when they were suffered like that and they were judged, they were judged as outcasts by men. But they need, but they're going to live according to the Spirit, according to the will of God. It's not saying that you know the dead are going to be preached to and then you know they'll be able to live according to the Spirit later on, according to the will of God. And right there in verse six, the phrase that, that's neglected is it says that though they are judged in the flesh as men. If you're judged in the flesh as a man, that means you're judged according to your works while you're living, while you're in the flesh, not by, you know, what you accept from a proxy baptism later on when you're waiting in what the Mormons call a spirit world. So that's an important verse that, that you need to watch out for if you ever have a discussion about that. So where the discussion kind of goes from there then is that once the spirit receives baptism for the dead, they're, they're, they teach that that spirit can accept the teachings and progress into paradise. Let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And these two points kind of tie in together. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes what? comes a waiting time in the spirit world until someone can be baptized for them and then they can accept the teachings of God and then go into heaven. Yeah, it always doesn't say that, does it? It says judgment. It's pointed for men once to die and then comes judgment. We live here in this world and we're judged according to the deeds that we do while we're alive. Once you're dead, then that's it. And the real hammer to drop then after that is to go over to Luke chapter 16 verses 19 through 31. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. In the study, this, this is where things start to get a little bit tense and, and a, little bit, a little bit frustrating. Um, Luke chapter 16, verse 19 through 31. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during, that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that you may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. 
But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. The key thing in that passage that I want to think about in regard to this, this idea of a spirit expecting or accepting teachings through this baptism of the dead and then moving you know, forward into heaven is uh, in particular there, look at verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. That cannot happen. This, this is not just a, a story that Christ told. This is, this is something that actually happened. This is detailing for us some information about what happens after we die. And it's pretty clear from this that once you've died, you're judged based on the things that you've done. There's a chasm there. There's, there's no crossing back and forth. Once your physical life is over, that's it. You can't, you can't change where you're at. There's, there's not a purgatory. There's no prayers for the dead. There's no baptism for the dead. You're set. You, you've had your time to do what you need to do, and, and that's what you're going to be judged on. And there's no crossing over. So then it comes back then to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29. Let's go ahead and turn over there. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? And they will point to this and say, see, it's biblical. It's baptism for the dead. There it is right there. The Apostle Paul is talking about baptism for the dead. And what you've got to do is, again, it's more than just one verse here. We've got to spread out a little bit and look at it more. Uh, really, the whole chapter is a discussion about the fact of Christ's resurrection. The teaching there in 1 Corinthians, is the, the problem that Paul is trying to address here is that there were some who were teaching that there is no resurrection or that the resurrection had already come. So in light of that, you know, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 15, 1 Corinthians, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So here in these first three verses, he's establishing... You know the testimony of, of the apostles, and that you know Christ died; he was raised up. All these people saw him, that there was a resurrection. And where it's going is that if you look in verse 12, it says, "Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead?" And that's is what this chapter is really going after to argue about. Because uh, if you look then at verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is also in, is in vain. Keeping that in mind, go back and read verse 29. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Look at verse 30. Why are we also in danger every hour? What it's saying is, 
what's the point? What's the point of you know being baptized? What's the point of putting yourself in danger for the faith every hour if there's no resurrection? If Christ didn't come back from the dead, if he just died and didn't raise up on the third day, there's no point. There's, why, why have faith? Why believe any of that? It, he would have no power. Because he was resurrected from the dead, because he rose on the third day, he conquered death. And that's, that's why we have faith, and that's why we believe in him. That's why we're able to have salvation through him. So that's the argument that's being laid out here. That if, if, there no, if there's no resurrection for the dead, why are, you, why are you Corinthians even getting together at all and doing anything? That's what the argument's going after here. So the whole point is that if the dead aren't raised, if there is no resurrection, baptism has no value. So also in studying this, I wanted to look at, okay, we've got this idea of baptism for the dead. They always want to go to the Book of Mormon and start pulling out the Book of Mormon. So I've got that with me today. And uh, I want to look at a couple of verses actually in the Book of Mormon that I'm going to read. And we're going to see here if the Book of Mormon actually says anything about baptism for the dead. The first one's from Alma, chapter 34, verse 31. I know you guys don't have this, so. So Alma chapter 34, verse 31. Yea, I would that ye would come forth and harden not your hearts any longer. For behold, now is the time and the day of your salvation. And therefore, if ye will repent and harden not your hearts, immediately shall the great plan of redemption be brought, be brought about unto you. Behold, for behold, this, is, this life is the time for men to prepare to meet God. Yea, behold, the day of this life is the day for men to perform their labors. Look at Second Nephi, chapter nine, verse thirty-eight. And in fine, woe unto all those who die in their sins, for they shall return to God and behold His face and remain in their sins. And then in Mosiah, chapter twenty-six, verse twenty-five through twenty-seven. And it shall come to pass that when the second trump shall sound, then, they shall, then shall they that never knew me come forth and shall stand before me. And then shall they know that I am the Lord their God, that I am their Redeemer, but they would not be redeemed. And then I will confess unto them that I never knew them, and they shall depart into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It turns out in the Book of Mormon, there are 33 references to the word baptism. And in not one instance is there ever an association of the word dead with baptism, in a sense of baptism for the dead, baptism of the dead, baptism by the dead, baptism in proxy of the dead, no association whatsoever. What, in fact, what you heard from those verses there is that the Book of Mormon actually teaches against baptism for the dead. Those verses verify the same things that we've been talking about, that during our physical lives here, those are the things that we're going to be judged upon. So the Book of Mormon itself contradicts Mormon teachings. So then usually, at some point in the discussion, as we've gone along with them, as we get into things like this and start bringing you know, issues up like this, you know, it, it tends to get frustrating for these guys. Get that, you know, that it's, they're kind of getting boxed in. They're getting surgically you know, picked apart. And so one thing that they always will fall back on is that, well, you know, the Bible's not reliable. 
This is this is one of the big things. The Bible is not reliable. Over the centuries, uh, you know, in the first century when the apostles were around and they were still there and teaching everything, you know, there's too much space for them to cover. There's too much distance. There's too much going on. You know, after they die, you know, the the, the Bible was corrupted through the years. You know, people have mistranslated. There's there all these problems with the Bible. There's all these issues with it. So it's not reliable. Let's take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, or some versions complete, equipped for every good work. I want you to think about this for a second. If God is going to give us all the scripture, he's going to inspire all of us. And it's going to be used, if we study it, to make us complete. We're going to be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. We're going to be adequate. He's going to inspire that so that it's written down and given to us. Don't you think he's going to protect it? Don't you think he's going to preserve it? And say, well, you know, over time, though, you know, I mean, people have distorted it. Do you think that really happened? Do we have any evidence in the Bible of an instance where the word was preserved and it was referred to as authoritative? I think we do. Think about all the many different times Christ was teaching people. In particular, think back to the time when he was being tempted by, the, by, the Satan, by Satan in the desert. The three temptations he was brought with, what did he start each one of those with in his response? It is what? Written. It is written. Think about it. He had to use manuscripts of the Old Testament that were not originals. A whole lot of time passed from Mount Sinai until Christ's life. Yet he frequently said it is written. He treated those as authoritative. Many, many years passed from the time that that law was first given to the actual manuscripts used at the time of Christ. You don't ever see any instance of him going, well, now, you know, kind of said, you know, written down like this over here, but that's not, you know, that's all right. He treated those manuscripts as authoritative. That means that what God gave at Sinai was still recorded and taught exactly the way it was supposed to be taught back then at Jesus' time when he's referencing those things. Now, granted, there were traditions of men and traditions of Pharisees and things like that that were added on, and he went after them on those things. But the law itself, when he was actually referencing scriptures, he taught it as authoritative. So we have that example from Christ. So if we think about that, if God inspired it, he can certainly preserve it, and he does the same for us today. That being said, uh, an old man once told me when I was a younger kid, uh, when I was a teenager, I was uh, pretty good at shirking responsibility and kind of just goofing off and things like that. But, you know, every once in a while in your life, somebody will they give you just a little phrase or something or, or teach you something and it just sticks with you and you never forget it. And the thing that he told me is, uh, he said, Dan, opportunity plus ability equals responsibility. You know, it, it can be easy, you know, when we start looking through these arguments and we start looking at some of the things that are saying, it's easy to want to want to kind of to mock or make fun of or to, you know, to lash out to try and score points on, if you will, um, you know, a Mormon or a couple Mormons that are, are, you know, coming around and teaching to you. Yeah. 
we, we have an opportunity. When they come and knock on our doors, that's an opportunity to try and teach them truth. We need to make sure that we have the ability so that when that opportunity comes, we can be responsible in trying to teach them the truth. It may not be very successful. These guys are heavily indoctrinated. They don't actually do a lot of reading on their own. They're just, it's, from what I can tell from questioning these guys, it seems to be very much a sense of almost uh, kind of a form of brainwashing that they go through growing up. Uh, but nevertheless, the opportunity is there. And I hope that all of us, when we have an opportunity like that, if they come and knock on our doors, at least try and make the effort. Don't shut the door. Let them come in. Try and share the truth with them. Try and teach them the truth and help them to to see that, you know, the Bible is inspired. It is complete. It's good for all of us and that we need to live by just this and that these teachings that they have in this Book of Mormon are, in fact, false and that they're not true.